Well, I think uh, Scott has been to Tennessee one too many times. It was kind of totally outrageous. I, I, uh, I didn't expect that. I saw them rehearsing yesterday, but I didn't see Scott's part in that. So we'll see if he'll be back next time. We will have Dick will join us uh, throughout the series for a couple more times to try and help figure out this church that talks about the top ten reasons why not to follow Jesus. Well, I wonder if you've heard of the phrase, um, the truth hurts. There's a story told of an immigrant who enlisted in the United States Army during World War II. Uh, The problem with that is he was very uh, nationalistic and wanted to help his new country, but he didn't know very much English. So the other boys in his barracks told him that uh, the general uh, was going to come through and do an inspection. And when he did, he always asked the same three questions. How long have you been in the army? How old are you? And are you receiving good food and good treatment? Those are the three questions the general always asked. So they quizzed this new recruit that didn't know any English. How long have you been in the army? And they told him, practice this. Two years. Say it out loud. So he said, two years. So he did that over and over again. Two years. How old are you? 22 years. Okay, keep practicing that until you memorize the answer. 22 years. Because the general always asks the same three questions. And the third question, are you receiving good food and good treatment? And you say both. Both. So he memorized that. Two years, 22 years, both. Inspection day came. The general came into to the barracks. And uh, he looked right at this young immigrant and he asked those three questions. Only he asked them out of order. How old are you, soldier? Two years, he said. How long have you been in this man's army? Twenty-two years, he said. Agitated, the general said, what do you take me for, a fool or an idiot? And he said, both. (laughs) Now, I believe that it really matters that you have the right answers to the right questions. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to try and find from Scripture some, some, some responses to objections that people have about this idea that we call following Jesus Christ. Today we want to look at that because we live in a world that values tolerance over truth. We live in a society that values pluralism over precision, freedom of choice over accuracy. If you say to someone, I'm right and you're wrong, you're considered closed-minded. Today I want to look at what it means to be a follower of Christ. But in doing that, I'm going to look at some of the objections that people have around that subject. So nowhere is this idea of, 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 of being open and free and, um, you know, together than the area of religion or moral truth. Nowhere else do we find our culture wanting to be tolerant than in the area of religion. There are a lot of groups out there, a lot of religions claiming that they have the right way, that their way is the truth. It's not just Christianity. That the path that they're on is the only path that leads to God. So instead of looking at different people and their perspectives, I want to look at one source, and that's the Bible. And we'll talk about that in a moment, too, while we look at the Bible and not some other book. But I want to look at this question from a different perspective. 
What does the Bible have to say about how we get to heaven? Does the Bible say there's one way or many ways to get to heaven? The message of the Bible, and we looked at this last week by way of review, the message of the Bible is crystal clear. There's just one way, one option when it comes to knowing God, being forgiven, and spending eternity with God in heaven. That one way is always and only Jesus Christ. There's only one access point to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ. It is through him and him alone, believing in Jesus, accepting his offer of forgiveness and eternal life, that we gain access to God and to heaven someday. And a couple of verses we looked at last week, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And Acts 4.12, Jesus is the only one who can save people. His name is the only power in the world that has been given to save people. We must be saved through him. How exclusive and how narrow is that? Both Jesus and the Bible are not bashful in claiming that they exclusively hold the truth. Now, I'll be really honest with you. A lot of people in our world, the majority of the people in our world have a major problem with this. A major problem. Let me give you some examples. Rabbi Shmuley Botich, that's his actual name, uh, said this. I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. Okay, that's a rabbi that said that. Rosemary Radford Ruther, who's an author, authoress, she called the Bible's claims absurd religious chauvinism. Indian philosopher Swami Vivekananda said this, we accept all religions to be true. And finally, Charles Templeton, who, by the way, is a really good author, but Charles Templeton is a um, very well-known atheist, said this about John 14:6. He said, it is insufferable presumption. So that's what the world thinks about this claim that there's only one way to heaven. That's what the world thinks about this claim that Jesus is the only way to God. They see it as spiritual racism, absurd religious chauvinism, an insufferable presumption. How do we deal with these objections? Well, the, way I, the only way I know how to deal with these kind of objections, and by the way, they're very, they're very real. Um, all of you have heard these objections from your friends and people you work with and relatives. All of you have heard these objections at some time. But how do we deal with those? The best way I want to deal with those kinds of things is to face them squarely and honestly. And, and with our minds. Uh, this is a time that I want us all to put on our thinking caps. Now, I know for some of you, that's dangerous, you know, for you to put on your thinking cap. But go ahead and try it today, right? We'll all try it together. Let's put on our thinking caps. And I'll look at some objections that are very real in the very real world that says our culture is doing things very differently than the way Jesus does them. So objection number one is this. God accepts everyone who is sincere. How many of you have heard that objection? Okay, God accepts everyone who is sincere. If you're sincere and you really are sincere about God and you're really sincere about what you believe, well, that's all that matters. 
Well, let's look at examples whether or not that's true. The people that followed Jim Jones back in the 1970s to Guyana and uh, drank strychnine and died, those people, listen to this, those people were very, very sincere about their faith. I mean, look at it this way. How many of you would drink strychnine for your faith, for what you believe in? Well, these people did. They were very sincere about following Jim Jones. And we could also add they're also sincerely dead. But they were sincere. I read of a nurse in a large hospital who changed an oxygen tank for a patient. A while later, she found the patient dead. Uh, The tank she had put was filled with nitrogen, not oxygen. She sincerely believed that she was filling, she was putting oxygen to the patient to the patient, but the consequences were deadly. She was sincere about her job, but she was sincerely wrong. And I will add, she's sincerely in prison today. Many years ago, many years ago now, I was um, a senior in high school and I was going on a date with this girl. Her name was Janice and Janice Um, loved to go downtown San Diego. She wanted to go to a a movie theater in downtown San Diego. Now, that was okay, except I, the only times I'd been downtown San Diego, I, my dad was driving and I didn't know anything about the city and I was intimidated by where to park and where to turn. There's a lot of one-way streets and all of that. But my dad coached me and he said, you can do this, son. I mean, you're 17 years old. It's time that you go out into the real world and do this. So I got in my 59 Plymouth Station wagon, very cool, very cool car, bench seat, big fins in the back, push-button transmission, AM radio that worked fairly well. It was just an awesome automobile. And I was going downtown. And in those days, if you were cool, and I aspired to be that, although I never quite made it, if you were cool, um, you would drive with your left hand and your right arm would be around your girl sitting next to you. And that was cool. So today, the seats that we have in our vehicles aren't conducive to that. But uh, they were in those days. So I'm downtown, driving downtown San Diego. I'm very cool. My dad showed me exactly where to go. But I turned down the wrong street. And it happened to be a one-way street. And cars were coming at me, blaring their horns. Uh, my, the girl that was sitting next to me was yelling and screaming. I'm not going to tell you what she said. And it was just kind of chaos and everything. And finally, I got the car turned around. And, and, and it was not a very good date. Now, the girl that went with me, um, she knew that I was sincere. I was sincere about doing the right thing, going the right way, going down the right street. But I was sincerely wrong. And she, by the way, sincerely never went out with me again. But uh, the point is that you can be absolutely convinced that something's right. And you can be really sincere about it and be sincerely wrong. I used to have a T-shirt that I wore when I played racquetball. And... um, uh, it was, a, it was a, about a Frederick Nietzsche. Some of you know him. He was a philosopher back in the 20th century, early part of the, latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And he was the one that made famous the phrase, God is dead. And he was very sincere about his beliefs. He was an atheist and very intelligent man, very sincere about his belief that God was dead. And I used to have this T-shirt that said, God is dead. And underneath it, it said, Friedrich Nietzsche. And under that, it said, Nietzsche is dead, and under that it said, God. Okay. And, but, so he, but he was very sincere about what he believed, but quite honestly, Nietzsche has been gone for over 100 years. He's sincerely dead. So what I'm saying is this. People can be sincere, 
yet sincerely wrong at the same time. If I'm jumping through the wrong hoop, it doesn't matter how many times I jump through the hoop, or how well I jump through the hoop, or how sincere I jump through the hoop. The point is, it's the wrong hoop. Sincerity doesn't make a person right or get a person to heaven. Being sincere about the right thing does. We've looked at this verse last week, but Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Let me read it again. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the road is wide that leads to hell. And many people enter through that gate. But the gate is small and the road is narrow that leads to true life. Only a few people find that road. I am absolutely convinced that most people that are walking through life, they're doing it very sincerely. They really believe that the way that they're going and the way that they're approaching life is the correct way. But the Bible says that sincerity is not the answer, but sincerity about the right thing. Do all sincere people get into heaven? The Bible says absolutely not. Satan, very sincere. Probably more sincere about what he believes than what you do. Jeffrey Dahmer, very sincere. Hitler, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden, all of them sincere. So sincere, they were willing to give their lives for what they believed. God does not accept everyone who's sincere. He accepts, he accepts those who are sincere about the right thing. And the right thing is always Jesus. Objection number one, God accepts everyone who is sincere. Not true. Objection number two. All religions are basically the same. How many of you have heard that? Okay. All religions are basically the same. I can't tell you how many, even people that are smart say that. And I think to myself, have you never read what these religions believe? Have you ever, never read their sacred literature that says what they believe? How can any thinking person say that all religions say the same thing? Because they don't. When you strip away all of the external differences... You find at the core of all religions, this is what they say, those who object to this, they say that you find a basic belief in God, and that's good enough. We may call them different names and use different language, but it all comes down to believing in God or Allah or Yahweh or Buddha or higher power. It all, it all comes to the same place. Well, that sounds all well and good until you start comparing the major religions of the world. You put Hinduism... Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and the teaching of the Mormon church and Christianity side by side. And you will find that, please hear this, that none of them even come close to each other's beliefs. You can't say this is true and this over here says the opposite of this and this is true too. It can't, it's not possible. One plus one is two. Doesn't matter if you believe it differently. Doesn't matter if you're sincere. One plus one is always two. Anyone who says all religions are the same haven't done their homework. The main, in fact, the main religions, and I'll just talk about six of them this morning. We don't have time for a lot more. Uh, aren't even in the same ballpark when it comes to God. How can you say that Hinduism and Christianity are basically the same? Hindus believe that God is an it. An unknowable, impersonal being. Christianity is very clear that they teach something very different from that. They teach, Christianity teaches that you can know God personally, intimately, knowingly through Jesus Christ. Completely different from Hinduism. 
How about Judaism? Judaism and Christianity are basically the same, people say. Well, because they both have the same Old Testament. Well, that's true that they have the same Old Testament, but if you don't see the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament, it's completely different. Judaism denies that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. The core teaching of Christianity. They're not the same. Friday morning uh, in our men's group, um, we had a, 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 a new guy. Uh, he's not a part of our church. He goes to a, a, a Messianic uh, um, Jewish church up in Scottsdale. But he is a um, Messianic Jew, which means that uh, he was born and raised Jewish by blood and by religion and went through bar mitzvah and all, always wanted to be a faithful Jew. But about five years ago, a friend of his led him to Christ and his life has been transformed. And it was really fascinating to hear him talk in our Bible study. We're studying the Gospel of John and talking about how that if you don't, if you see the Old Testament as just an entity, all you see is what you have to do to make God not kill you. He said that's what the Old Testament is about. But when you see it through the eyes of the New Testament, you see that this loving God has graciously provided a way, and that way is Jesus Christ. So don't say that Christianity and Judaism are the same. They are not. How can we say that the teaching in the Book of Mormon and the teaching of the Bible are the same? Listen to this. Mormons deny every major Christian doctrine. Now, they may use the same language you do. You'll hear Mormons say, well, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. And he's my Savior and Lord. But hear this. They deny every major Christian doctrine. Mormons do not believe that you get to heaven solely by receiving God's gift of eternal life. There's other things you have to do. How can we say that there are many gods, like Buddhists say, or no gods? And... There is just one God, like the Christians say at the same time. How can we justify the night and day differences between the eightfold path, the five pillars of Islam, and the Book of Mormon with the teachings of Jesus Christ? You can't. Any thinking person, any person that's read all of these documents has to say something is wrong. These religions all say different things about how you get to heaven and how you know God. Something's wrong. Only one thing can be truth at, this, at one time. Everything else cannot be the truth. Friends, the major religions aren't even close when you do an honest comparison. In the six I mentioned, none of them are in agreement about anything. Are we supposed to turn off our minds and say, well, they're all basically the same? They're all true. They all lead to the same place. We do not want to be naive or uninformed. My question is this. How can they all be true if they say radically different things? They cannot. Second First Thessalonians 5.21 says test everything. And that means test your own faith. Test your own Bible. I, 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 I promise you, if you test what you believe, if you test what the Bible says, you're going to come up with some answers. I'm not telling you just to believe what I'm saying. Don't just believe what I, you know, I've come up with. I want you to test your, test your faith. Test these other religions. Compare them with Christianity. Because one plus one always equals two. One plus one does not equal three or four or five or six or seven at the same time. It's impossible. One of these answers, if one answer is true, then the other answers are false. Objection number two. All religions are basically the same. Absolutely not true. Objection number three. Christianity is narrow and unfair. Now, we looked at that a little bit last week. This is the old 
Who do you Christians think you are by saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Now, that objection you've all heard, and you've all heard it many times. It is so judgmental, so arrogant, so condescending. How can Christians claim that 75% of the world's population, probably more, 75% of the world's population is, is on the wrong path? How can Christianity say that 5 billion people on this planet are going the wide way, the wrong way? How can we say that? Well, let me make several points, and then you draw your own conclusions. I won't even tell you what to think. Just draw your own conclusions. The first thing is this. Christians aren't the only ones claiming to be exclusively right. Every religion claims that they have the truth. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a religion. Every religion says, we, have, we know how to get to heaven. Every religion says, we know the right way. Every one of them that I've studied have claimed to be uniquely true. They all think that everyone else is wrong. Let's not just label Christianity as intolerable. To some extent, all religions have that same intolerance. Number two, Christians aren't the ones being narrow or intolerant. Please hear this. Christians aren't the ones being narrow or intolerant. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who's being narrow and intolerant. You don't have to believe me. But you have to come to terms, you have to come to grips with what Jesus says about salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the door. I, I, Jesus made all of those claims. Now, C.S. Lewis said that you can't just say Jesus was a great prophet. Anybody that says that has done no homework whatsoever. He was not a great prophet. He was exclusive and he was intolerant. He said, I am the only way. There's no other ways to heaven except by me. Jesus said, I am the way. C.S. Lewis said, either he's a liar. So who'd want to follow him if he's a liar? He's a lunatic. Who'd want to follow him if he's a lunatic? Or he is exactly who he says he was. He can't be just some namby-pamby, middle-of-the-road prophet. It's impossible. Either he was lying, he was crazy, or you have to believe who he said he was. Christians aren't the ones being narrow and intolerant. Jesus is. The third thing is this. Something can be narrow and true at the same time. Let me illustrate. Again, one plus one is two. That's narrow. It's intolerant. It's exclusive. No one can change it. Whether you believe it or not, whether you're sincere or not, it's just true. It's narrow, but it's right. What's the capital of Arizona? Well, it's Phoenix. It's narrow, exclusive. You might say, oh, yeah, but we love Tucson and we really love Payson in the summer. Well, that's great, but they're not the capital of Arizona. Uh, How about this? The Arizona Diamondbacks are the best team in the Western Conference of the National League. Say, that's true, okay? And now you might hurt San Francisco Giants' feelings. They might feel, well, but, you know, have you ever gone to sporting events? This is great. I, when I was uh, younger, I used to go to the Charger games, and the Chargers were terrible in the 70s and the 80s, m- much of the time. And, uh, we go, and all these fans would be going, we're number one. Well, actually, no, you actually, you're number six. You know, you're, you're not number one. But no, we're number one. No, no, there's no, no, sorry, there's only one number one, and right now it's the Diamondbacks. So you can, but, but you can't argue. Uh, my point is this. Something can be narrow and true at the same time. Let's take landing an airplane. We have several pilots in our church. When I fly in a jet, I want the pilot to land on the runway at the airport right side up. 
Okay. I know that's narrow. <laughs> I know it's intolerant. There may be others that believe differently than I do. But when I'm in an airplane, I, I'm just that way. I'm just very close-minded. I just want it that way. I want it on the runway. Now, the pilot may say, you know what? It is narrow. And it, it's not fair. I think today I'm going to land on, uh, you know, I-17. Uh, or I'm going to land in a cornfield in Iowa. You know, I, I just think it would be better to include more possibilities in this landing of an airplane thing. It's kind of narrow-minded to always land on the runway. Well, I know this sounds really crazy, but that's the way it is. I want the pilot to land the plane upside right. I know it's narrow, but that's just not bad. That's just narrow. I can accept that. I hope you can, too. I can accept that all religions are not equally true. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. It is narrow. The moment I say one thing is true is the moment I'm saying something else is false. Objection number three, Christianity is narrow and unfair. Objection number four, who says Jesus and the Bible are right? Now, really, this is the crux of the matter. If you talk to somebody that's educated and they've done a lot of, a lot of reading in religion, they'll say this, and there's validity to this. Who says the Bible gets the nod over the Book of Mormon, or over the Eightfold Path, or over the Five Steps of Islam. Who says the Bible takes precedent over that? Again, this is where I need to ask you to put on your, your thinking caps. Why does Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible get the nod over Buddhism or Islam or Mormonism? This is where you have to test the waters. You have to do your homework. I can't do it today. I, in the past, I've done series of sermons about this, and maybe I'll do one again if you want, but um, you have to do your homework. You have to compare them. And the best way to compare movements is to compare their leaders. If you want to really know about Islam, you look at Muhammad. You look at his life. Was he a man of peace or a man of war? If you really want to know what Islam is about, the Koran is about, you look at the leader. Same thing with Jesus Christ. Which truth source is accurate? The Koran? Book of Mormon? The Bible? Which passes the test of history? Which passes the test of archaeology? Which passes the test of lives that are changed? Now, again, I can't give you the answer to all of these, but I promise you, if you study, you'll come up with your answers to all of these questions. There is no religion. That, let me say it this way. Christianity has literally tens of thousands of archaeological discoveries that have authenticated the fact that the Bible is true. Tens of thousands. The Book of Mormon has zero. Islam has seven actual things that archaeologically tie them to their truth source. You have to use your own head. Which do you want to follow? Now, which truth source answers the basic questions of life. Big fundamental questions. And I think there's really four. You might want to write these down. Four fundamental questions of life are these. Where did I come from? What is the meaning of life? How do I become right with God? And where am I going after I die? Really, those questions are much more important than where you can have lunch today. Those are the questions you have to... And which truth source of all religious books and materials, all scriptures of all time, which answer those questions satisfactorily? I'll tell you, only one. 
And that's the Bible, which is the Word of God. I challenge you to find the answers to those questions. Compare the options. What you will discover is that the Bible answers these questions in a far superior way than to any other supposed source of truth. And again, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Test everything. Test everything. If you're wondering about all of these things, if you're not sure if all these things really are, I would be happy to work. I've got books and I've got studies and I've got everything that kind of backs up all these things I've been telling. If you're interested in that, give me a call and we'll get together and we'll sit down and we'll talk and I'll give you some things to read and, and let you know. The one thing that is logical, that is archaeologically and historically correct, that stands the testimony of time, the one and only truth source that you can depend on is the Bible as the Word of God. I guarantee it. Last objection, objection number five. And this is the one probably that you've been waiting for this entire sermon, and it's this. What about those who have never heard of Jesus Christ? How many of you have heard that objection? If you haven't heard it, you've said it yourself. If you haven't said it yourself, you haven't been thinking, right? What about those who have never heard of Jesus Christ? If the only people who get in the door of heaven are those who believe in Christ and respond to his offer of forgiveness and eternal life, What about the legions of people who have never had the opportunity to respond to Christ? What about the five billion people on the planet, many of who have never heard of the name of Jesus, who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have never heard that God loves them? Let me give you a short answer, and then we'll give a little bit more complete answer. The short answer is this. God will somehow judge all men and all women fairly. That's a short answer. Let me give you a slightly longer answer. The first thing is this. Some are exempt. Now, I'm not talking about some adults. I'm talking about some. Some don't have the mental capacity to make a decision about Christ. We have a, a beautiful niece. You've heard me talk about Devin, who is, uh, has severe Down syndrome. She has a mental age of about an 18-month-old. And she loves Jesus. She doesn't really understand it, but she loves Jesus. She will be judged based on her mental age. That's why we believe that babies will be in heaven, small children, certainly the mentally handicapped person who dies. God will have compassion and understanding. God only holds us accountable for the knowledge we have received. He's fair. So some are exempt. Um, All others, this is from the Bible, this is from Romans chapter 1, all others are without excuse. Now you're saying to yourself, that's not fair, that's not fair. What about that, that, that guy in Borneo, uh, that guy in the deepest part of, of Kenya that's never heard the gospel? All others are without excuse. That's the testimony of God's word. What about the person in some remote part of the world who will never have access to the Bible or the message of Christ? Let me say this before I make my point. And it, it says, we're not talking about anyone in this room. We're not talking about anyone who lives in the United States. We're not talking about almost any place in the world that has heard and has had access to the scriptures and to God's word and to the gospel. So we're not talking about anyone in this room. But having said that, let me summarize what the Bible says. In your uh, your sermon notes and up on the screen, I'll, I'll put this passage from Romans chapter 1. Now, I'd like you to read all of Romans chapter 1. We won't read it all today, but the whole chapter is a beautiful uh, commentary on this. But listen to just verses 19 and 20. God is talking about those who are in darkness and those who are in light, right? 
Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Plain to who? Plain to all people. Okay, that's the context. What may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Having said that, let me and read that, let me summarize what the Bible says in this passage. First of all, it says, God is within everyone's reach, regardless of where they live. Well, how's that possible? Well, God makes it possible. God is within reach of every person. The Bible is very clear that if you have a heart that is sincere and seeking God, seeking the one true God, if you have that kind of a heart, God will make himself known to you. There have been examples of missionaries who have gone to places where the gospel has never been heard or seen for thousands and thousands of years. It's never been s- spoken. The word Isu or Jesus or Yeshua have never been heard in that place. And missionaries have gone there and they have found some people whose hearts have been tuned to try and find the living God. And when those missionaries tell them about the love of Jesus and the love of God, they say, that's it. That's what I've believed. I haven't known what name to put on it. I haven't known what it meant. But I know that there's a God that loves me and there's a God that has made a way for me. I know that. I've been searching for that God. Every time missionaries go to these places where the gospel's never been, they find people whose hearts have been led to Jesus. God is within everyone's reach regardless of where they leave. Second point is this. God has put a knowledge about himself into every human heart. We talk about that emptiness or that vacuum in a life you know, that can only be filled by God. God has put that desire and that yearning and that hunger for God in every heart. Again, if you have a heart that seeks God, he will make himself known to you. The third thing we find in Romans chapter 1 is this. Creation clearly speaks of God's existence and power. If you are an atheist, and we may have some here today, I don't know, or agnostic, if you're an atheist, I applaud you. Because to be an atheist, you have to have remarkable faith. You have to have deep and abiding faith. To believe, to look in this world, to look in the sky, to look at the beauty of this planet, to look as, as astronomers do into the, to the, the vastness of, of the universe, to look in the face of a baby, to believe that all of that happened by some primordial sludge a billion years ago. You've got to have tremendous faith. God bless you for that. I mean, you have a lot more faith than I do. But I look around me. I look in the skies. I look in the face of an infant. And I say, God's handprints are all over this universe. I must believe in God. Creation clearly speaks of God's existence and power. And finally, every human being is responsible to act on the truth God has revealed to them. Every human being is responsible to act on the truth God has revealed to them. In other words, summing up Romans 1, in some way, in some respect, with the above criterion, all people will answer to God truthfully and fairly, and God will answer them as well. You know what amazes me about this whole question, why people get upset over God being just one way, 
that there's only one way to get to heaven. There's only one way to find God. It, it really puzzles me why people get so upset because here's the truth of it. God provided a way. He provided a way. We, we all deserve death, every one of us. The Bible's clear on that, that if you've sinned, if you told one lie, you're a liar and you deserve death. If you've cheated one time, you're a cheater, you deserve death. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. What I think is incredible, what I think is amazing, is that God has provided a way. The way. Jesus Christ. People call it narrow. I call it awesome. I call it unbelievable. I call it thank you, Jesus. Basically, Jesus blockaded the road to hell with the cross of Jesus Christ. He said, you're going to have to go around me to ignore me because I'm going to put myself right in front of you. And he does that through creation. He does that to the remotest parts of the world. God said, if you seek me, I will seek you and find you. What's our response to this message today? What's God nudging you to do? If you're a spiritual seeker, um, and we, I know we have people in our church that are constantly wanting more information. How do we know it's true? How do we know? I, I respect that. A spiritual seeker. If you are, don't just ask the question. Ask the question. Do the research. Go online. Read the Bible. Compare it to other religions. Do the work. Don't just wonder, hmm, I wonder. If you're a spiritual seeker, seek the truth. And if you're one who has embraced the truth and say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe that the narrow way is Jesus Christ and he provided a way for me to have my sins forgiven and to have life everlasting. I believe that. Then here's my message to you. Accept the truth. Many of you have. Some of you may be holding back for some reason. Some of you know this is the truth, but you still haven't responded. You haven't embraced it as your truth. What's the hang up? Why the delay? Accept that truth today. And for those of us who believe this, for those of us who have accepted Christ and said, yes, he's my Lord and Savior, I know that way. Here's our responsibility. Let others know the truth. Bear witness to the light that's in you. Tell people about Jesus. I can't tell you the, the hunger that is in the world. If you go out there, people are searching for truth. And they're searching for something that says, yes, this is it. It's not just one of many thousand ways. This is it. One way to heaven? Absolutely. Every day, 10,000 Americans are born. Every day. Every day, 6,000 Americans die. Every one of them. Every one of them desperately needs Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, I I would just pray this morning for those in our sanctuary who are really struggling with these things, that there's so many objections in the world to Jesus being the way that they just stop searching, stop thinking. But Father, my desire, my prayer is that they would search the truth. Because if they do, if they do, Lord, you have promised that you will reveal yourself to them. Father, there's something very exciting about uh, this message too. It brings us to a point of 
of, of seeing and knowing the one true God through Jesus Christ. And we find that, one way that we find that is a very physical way, just like our baptism a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a physical way that we find and see and know God is through Holy Communion. Because the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken. The cup represents the blood of Jesus that was shed. And we represent a community of believers that are connected to Christ and connected to each other. So, Father, we invite you into this uh, service of love. We invite you into this time of appreciating and knowing and experiencing once again the brokenness that Jesus had for us. So, Father, we invite you into this moment, into this sacrament, into this time when we tell you once again that we love you, we believe in you, and we want to serve you for the rest of our lives. To that end, we pray your blessing on our time in communion. In Christ's name, amen.